0: Coming up on Word Matters, we answer your questions. I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Neil Servan, Ammon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. We always invite our listeners to write to us with language-related matters that annoy or confuse or merely puzzle them, And today we're going back to the mailbag to address some of your most recent concerns. Here's Amon Shea.
1: Listener Bobby Cope writes in with a question. I'm wondering about the phrase when something goes south, meaning has failed or fallen apart, etc. And he wants to know, did this phrase have its origins in the Civil War? Many phrases did have origins in the Civil War. Perhaps one of the more notable ones was deadline which was a line past which you would be shot if you walked, which came from prison camps in the Civil War. But to the best of our knowledge, something having gone south, usually goes south, went south, or headed south, did not originate in the Civil War. For the sense that Bobby Cope is referring to, our earliest citations tend to be in reference to finance. For instance, is a citation from 1926, Should Los Angeles advance quotations further, however, it would be necessary to advance local prices as there would be a demand for high-score Puget Sound stock to go south. And that's from the Spokesman Review in Spokane, Washington, 1926. It goes back, as far as we can tell, to about 1920. And typically, in early use, it's in this financial meaning. There is an earlier sense of which we do not define because it's more in the realm of Dated slang, Jonathan Green defines it in his Green's Dictionary of Slang, meaning to abscond with, to run off. That's a little earlier in use, but that only goes back 1910, 1905. We have citations. There you are, said the Hick, as he went south with my cigarettes. From Variety in 1912. And again, Variety 1918. The Low Circuit Monday morning found an act had gone south on it and notified the Vaudeville Managers Protective Association. So that's slightly related, but still semantically distinct meaning, but far removed from what we would consider to be attributable to the Civil War.
2: Reminds me of the British expression, pear-shaped. You're right, things have gone pear-shaped. And I've always kind of wondered where that came from. I'm not sure what that really (laughs) means. What are we evoking? And why didn't they go with pyroform, which means (laughs) pear-shaped? So when I was to
3: assume that the South here is someone is visualizing a chart and the line is heading downward.
1: Right, exactly. Right.
3: That's what it means. So that would be where south is on a map. So someone is like projecting the map onto the chart with a line graph of some kind, and then when profits go south, that means that you're heading downward. That's right. Sort of. of course.
1: But you know what's interesting is we never say profits have gone north, do we? We never
2: do. No. We do use north metaphorically that way, right? earnings north of.
1: That's right. Right. That's a good point, yeah. Yeah. But just the things don't head north.
2: Isn't that interesting how idioms fit into a slot and never get out of it? Right. And that's sort of what an idiom is, which is to say it's immutable. You know, you can't replace any of the elements. Right. That's the way you say it.
0: Peter Sokolowski has our next listener question about a particular word's two spellings.
2: We have a note from Florence that says, I love your podcast, thank you very much. I was wondering if you could explain how all the different spellings of the word czar came to be. And Florence spells czar T-S-A-R, which is absolutely a spelling that I'm familiar with. But of course, there's another one that's maybe even more familiar, which is C-Z-A-R for czar. And why do we spell this two different ways in English? Well, basically, the short answer is it's a transliteration of a non-Roman alphabet because the Cyrillic alphabet in Russian – so tsar means the ruler of Russia, especially before the 1917 revolution, the equivalent of the word emperor – Because Russian is spelled in Cyrillic, we have to sort of approximate the sounds of Russian with English phonetics in the Latin alphabet. And so that's why we ended up with two different versions. There's a little complication here. The spelling with a T comes from French, and that's the way the French spell it. And it corresponds to the fact that in French, that initial sound of a hard Z, as we would in English, like zebra or something, is always kind of soft. So to put a T in front of it makes it that Ts, that Tsar. And it's odd that in English we then transliterated the name with a CZ because although it reads fine in English, it kind of goes against the phonetic rules of Slavic languages because the CZ elements in Latin letters usually sound like ch like the name Czechoslovakia. And so if you read something in Polish or Czech, you would say "ch when you see a CZ and not Z or T. And so some people criticize the CZ spelling because it's sort of antiphonetic, if you're being literal about the source. However, that's much the more common spelling in English is with the CZ. It's also important to recognize that czar comes from Kaiser, the Germanic Kaiser, which comes from Caesar in Latin. So Caesar, Kaiser, czar they're all the same word etymologically.
3: This happens with other languages too. Oh, yeah. you know, there are other languages that don't use the alphabet that we use for English, and then we have to approximate those sounds when we borrow the words. It happens from Arabic It happens from Hebrew and Yiddish. Think of the word bupkis. I think we enter three different spellings for the noun bupkis. Um, Because the plosive there before the K, sometimes people voice it, sometimes people don't. So is it a P or is it a B? The vowel at the end, I believe, can be spelled with an E or a U. And so that's one example of another language where this happens. And there's certainly transliterations of Arabic, Arabic names in particular, I find whenever somebody, a leader, is written about in the American press, there's never a settled spelling right away. The K sound might be rendered as Q in some ways, or K in another, or a G, I believe, Muammar Gaddafi had like oh, right. yeah, many multiple spellings,
2: spellings yeah, rendered. Right. That's sort of an example that we see in the modern press still. It reminds me of the names of Chinese cities like Peking and Beijing are the same city. It was a different model of transliteration. And so at a certain point, they just simply all changed. In the older English writings about Istanbul, it's written just as Istanbul without the initial I. And these conventions of transliteration change over time and have largely settled. Tsar uh, in English, of course, we use it in governmental terms. You have a drug czar, you have different governmental positions using that. And that's a use that goes back, I would have thought, only to the you know maybe 40 or 50 years goes to
1: the 1860s. In the mid-19th century, we were using this as a great citation from the Cleveland Weekly Plain Dealer in 1864, and somebody's calling upon what they call the Tsar of the War Office, which was Stanton, who is uh, in Lincoln's administration. Sure. A colonel who had been dismissed by court-martial called upon the Tsar of the War Office and requested him to examine some papers and give his opinion. I haven't time to do it, sir, said Stanton. Wow. And what's interesting to me about that is that when we use that in the sense of a figure who has great power or authority, we always seem to use the CZ spelling, and we yes. rarely, if ever,
2: use the right. TS spelling.
1: Yep. That's right. We've definitely distinguished between them in that sense.
2: And you might see the TS in titles of works of literature or pieces of music. There's something a little bit literary about it, but they just sort of lean in different directions. As always, usage determines the standards.
0: That's right, and it's convention. Like you said, Peter, these are conventions, and conventions become habit, and they become what appears correct, and that's what becomes established, and that's what people expect, and it's what they use.
2: This is the kind of word that people would think, boy, isn't there an official spelling of this? But it shows you how all words work, which is they sort of land where they land. And it's the convention that determines how we then judge this level of standardness if this is the acceptable form or if these are variant forms. We do note in the dictionary that the form spelled with a TS is less common than the form spelled with a CZ in English.
1: That's our way of saying, come on, English, get it together. <laughs>
0: You're listening to Word Matters. I'm Emily Brewster. I'll be back after the break with another of your questions. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media.
2: I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for The Word of the Day, a brief look at the history and definition of one word available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, Visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at NEPM.org.
1: I'm Amon Shea. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters at m-w.com.
0: We have a letter from Kathy Hill. She writes, people who are in line versus people that are in line. I have always used the former, but so many on TV and in print use the latter. It sounds wrong to me. Am I incorrect or is either correct? It bothers me slash I don't like it. LOL. (laughs) (laughs) I think I generally default to people who are in line, but people that are in line is very old, very established. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. That is our oldest relative pronoun. And it was used to refer to both people and things, has been used for hundreds and hundreds of years. The OED has its earliest example of the relative pronoun that being used for a thing from 1,200 years ago, being used to refer to people more than 850 years ago. So it is unimpeachable, for sure. But if it's unimpeachable, if it's this old, why is it disliked by many people? Because Kathy Hill is not alone in disliking this. We don't really know for sure, but that was in very good use. And then it sort of fell out of use in the 17th century, in the late 17th century. And when it came back into use in the early 18th century, and again, we don't know why it did either of these things. But when it came back into use, people were complaining about it. People were framing it as a kind of upstart, even though really it was, you know, a thousand years old. Mm, I think that
1: knows what it did. And it should feel bad for what it did.
0: You do. You think so. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
3: Well, I think people might find it a use that irritates because it sort of removes this slight element of humanity from the person, right? You know, who is the pronoun we use for people? You know, who is that over there? When we say a person that, it almost feels like that element of humanity has been just slightly stripped for no particular reason.
0: But as a general pronoun, we use that that way all the time. That is my sure. friend over mm-hmm. there. right? Like That's true. We don't That's say true. who is my friend unless it's an interrogative. Right.
3: And then we have things like nouns like a team or something that might consist of people, but we don't really know. Do we refer to them all as people when we say a team who or we tend to more say a team that because we want to think of the unit rather than as the fact their individual humanity all grouped together in this weird way. I've been working with Christmas songs and looking at words to Christmas songs. And I think of a line from the Gene Autry song Up on the Housetop, And it says, Give her a dolly that laughs and cries. Now, a dolly is obviously a thing, but it's a thing that's likened to a human. Mm. And we are even talking about his ability to cry and laugh, which are human traits. And yet we say a dolly that laughs and cries, not a dolly. Because otherwise laughs it's, and really cries. Creepy, it's, it's really creepy, Neil. It's really creepy to think of a dolly being a, a real human. So that is another branch of that who versus that question. Well,
2: there's but, another song too. It makes me think of the Gershwin song, The Man That Got Away or The Girl That Got Away. It's a standard song sung by Judy Garland, among others. When Frank Sinatra made a second version of it, he actually changed the lyric to The Girl Who Got Away. So he sort of corrected it. Maybe there's a sense that that is sort of informal or less formal than Who, but it's certainly not incorrect.
3: I believe the David
0: Bowie song is The Man Who Sold the World.
2: But the man that fell to earth?
0: (laughs) Right. Well, who is definitely correct also, right? But that is also correct.
2: And we use that in our definitions at Merriam-Webster when it's not certain that an action, for example, can be made only by a person and could be made by an animal, for example, or some inanimate object. And so that is the sort of language of our definitions very often.
3: Yeah, that was actually a style rule in the dictionaries. And I believe one of the rules was if it was any conceivable way, it could be a non-human, then it would be one that, and even in any word that ended in E-R, the noun ending in E-R, we would say one that, even if it was only possible for it to be a person. That was just a rule we had in the dictionary. So
2: fighter is one that fights, and Mm -hmm. it does allow for, for example, you could have a dog that's a fighter, or you could Mm -hmm. be looking out- A robot. Right, looking out your window and seeing, now that blue jay is a fighter, or something like that.
0: Neil Servan is up next with words that transform from being literal to figurative. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret?
3: Listener Joe Germani has a question about words that start out as being literal descriptions and due to some change just become a figurative meaning. Joe's example is the term footage. In video recording and in filmography, footage refers to literal, actual feet of film. You produce a f- film strip that is a certain amount of feet long, and then that is what is called the footage when you review the footage later now that things are recorded digitally, and the word footage is really only figurative now. The word footage still exists. You can talk about digital video footage. He's asking, is there a term for that change in language, and do you all have favorite examples of this change in a word's meaning? In terms of whether this has a term or not, I don't really know of one referring to this kind of specific shift in usage where it's something that had been literal and then only exists as figurative words. See figurative use all the time from the literal sense all the time, but I don't know of one where the literal application has become obsolete. I do know of a few examples of this happening. One that occurs to me, I'm always struck when I hear the verb to telegraph, referring to something that is an invention that we think of as the 19th century, and yet we hear about Boxers will be accused of telegraphing punches sometimes. Mm. It's clear to the opponent what punch is going to be thrown. Pitchers sometimes telegraph pitches to the batter without even meaning to. They tip their pitches sometimes. Mm. Telegraph, we enter it as a verb, meaning to make known by signs, especially unknowingly and in advance. Unless we are referring to the device historically, that's what we're talking about when we hear of the verb to telegraph. Another example that comes to mind that isn't so much about technology but about economic advancement is the adjective dime store, which of course referred to stores of the F.W. Woolworth ilk when things literally cost a dime. I remember shopping at Woolworth's as a child. I think they went out of business in like the 90s. And things weren't a dime then, obviously. But we still use dime store to refer to something that's cheap of low quality not just objects either. We could say dime store advice, dime store psychologists I've heard of. Dime store operation. Dime store excuses, dime store operation. Mm. Of course, now we don't have dime stores anymore. We have dollar stores. <laughs> uh, so inflation has changed the role of dime stores in the language, but we still use it as this adjective, even though you aren't going to shop at a dime store anymore.
0: I love the figurative use is such a frequent way of extending meaning of words. It's almost a guarantee that any word that has significant currency is going to be applied figuratively. And it's responsible for many words that we don't even think of as being remarkable or interesting or anything. I think of the word sweet, which was originally an adjective describing something that was a flavor. And then the noun is really a figurative extension of that. You eat sweets. It's like a figurative application. I have a four-year-old daughter. The other day, she was coloring, and uh, when she went outside the lines, she would say she was spilling.
3: Oh. Spilling. Yeah, huh.
0: yeah. I was like, oh, okay, right. There's just very logical, figurative extension of the word spill to talk about extending something beyond its prescribed limits.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Emily, that we're surrounded by words which we don't even stop and think about. Any word which has been around for long enough will have changed sufficient to have taken on some kind of figurative meaning my favorites are also the ones which are kind of hidden in plain sight. I think a great example is the word secretary, which in its initial oh. application was, you would pronounce it secretary. It was somebody who kept secrets so on behalf of a secret. superior. And that's going back to the 14th century. And obviously, wow. we've kind of broadened that meaning sufficiently that we don't think of that as a primary sense anymore. There was one I just came across recently, which is also, I think, kind of interesting, but a little more grim, which is the word death toll, which were All of a sudden, all uncomfortably familiar with in the midst of the coronavirus, we think of the death toll as the number of people that have been killed or found to be deceased from an event. But the original meaning, it was used in reference to the tolling of church bells, usually, to to signify the dead. Quite literal. Right. So we started using death toll as a kind of numeric indicator of the death toll stands at 500, whatever. The late 19th century, but there are plenty of citations going back to the early 19th century, like there's one from the Cape Town Gazette in 1827 from South Africa, which very clearly says the death toll has been tinging since morning in 300 uh, steeples. They're so just, it's bringing
2: that image to the...
1: Right. They're just ringing the bell to, to mark the dead, which is a very literal meaning that we rarely, if ever, use anymore.
2: Right. We'd understand it, I suppose. Right. I mean, my favorite, I've used this before, but it's striking to me that sort of hiding in plain sight quality of a word like vitriol, which we use in political contexts, meaning harsh and angry words, bitterly harsh language or criticism. But originally, vitriol was hydrochloric acid, was a scientific term for liquid that burns. And so the liquid that burns becomes words that burn as a metaphor. And now, of course, no one really refers to the liquid. We almost always refer to the rhetorical use of this. And so that's a metaphor.
3: It's weird how we find metaphors, too. It's like when we think of a term that has been adopted even though it's long gone, like carbon copy. Mm, It's once referred mm -hmm. to actual reprographics. I remember doing a thing with mimeographs for my teacher. (laughs) I would have to write something, and then there would be a carbon copy at the bottom of it, and then you would make uh, reproductions of it. And, of course, now email software borrows that term for when you send a copy of an email to someone else, and yet we can also use it figuratively to mean he's a carbon copy of his father, someone who shares all the characteristics of someone else. It's funny how we just decide that that is going to remain, even though carbon copies aren't a thing we need to use anymore. I think also the terms that have derived and then further derived, I think of the term soap opera, which once referred to radio programs that were sponsored by soap companies that got associated with these melodramatic plots. And then even though they started being sponsored by other companies and not just soap, they were still called soap operas. That was retained in the semantic meaning of the word. And yet now we say this person's life is a soap opera. All these lines are being drawn to this one person who's got a, a life with also its romantic problems or just dramatic issues or whatever. Sure. And it draws a line to soap companies. <laughs> All through the decades and the centuries, it's just strange how these things survive, these reference survive.
0: Well, metaphor is a powerful force. Exactly. It is.
2: Metaphor elevates etymology to the level of story. You know, it becomes not just a linguistic fact, but a narrative. And that's why it's so compelling. And that's why I think maybe a lot of people seek it out. We want a story. We want posh to mean poured out in starboard home. And we want cop to be a constable on patrol. Those are false, by the way. (laughs) We're attracted to them because they're so compelling.
0: We wrap up this trip to the mailbag with singular words that sound plural. Here's Peter.
2: Mark Robinson writes in with a question. I'd love to hear more about scissors, pliers, pants, and any other words that sound plural but refer to a single thing. Are they a special type of word? How do they come about? And is there a singular form that's just uncommon? That's a really good question, and this is one of those things, because English is, in so many ways, is so normalized, it's odd that we have these plurals that aren't plural, in effect. The history of pants is kind of fun, so we'll just start there. It does go back to a character in the Commedia dell'arte, the Italian 16th century theater form. So pants comes from a character in the Commedia dell'arte called Pantalone, The stock characters also had stock costumes. They all kind of wore the same thing. We can think of another of these characters, Harlequin, and there's kind of an identifiable look to a Harlequin. We all can recognize that by the costume. One of the things about the costume of the pantalones is the Pantalone wore what came to be called in English pantaloons. Pantaloons, just an anglicization of Pantalone, the trousers that this character wore. And then over time, it was just reduced from pantaloons to pants, And it's interesting that Ambrose Bierce found that abbreviation to be very much a a reduction in formality. He noted in his book, *Write It Right, abbreviated from pantaloons, which are no longer worn, this term is vulgar exceedingly. So he was very judgmental about (laughs) the use of the word pants. And pants, of course, also in British English today refers to underwear, what we might call panties in American English. That's a long way of saying that pants is from this character. And like trousers, it's another one of these terms. It's a plural word that refers to a single object.
0: Yes, and there's a name for this type of term. It is a Latin name, plurale tantum. Uh-huh. And the plural of that, wow. because it does have a plural form, is pluralia tantum. They're English words that have only a plural form, but that represent a singular object. And like scissors, right? Like pants. They have two parts. And when we want to talk about one, it's got this plural form. It's got that plural marker on the end, the S. And when we want to talk about one, we talk about them as a pair.
2: Right, a pair of pants.
0: A pair of pants, a pair of glasses, a pair of scissors, a pair of tweezers.
2: Isn't that interesting? And they all follow this pattern. Yep. In French, it always strikes me as funny that pants and especially the word jeans are singular. So you hand me my jean. Can you get my jean out of the dryer? That's the way you say it in French. It makes perfect sense. It's a single object.
0: Right. Well, and pant also occurs as That's a singular. True. I first became aware of it in fashion context. Yeah. Like it was fancier by taking a little bit of the humor out of pants by making it
2: pants. Absolutely. And I've heard A that. lovely
0: I've lady's heard. pant in gabardine.
2: Yes, I've heard it in just that way. Exactly. Yeah. It's understandable
3: why we are so comfortable referring to these as plurals. These are items with two parts that... Obviously, work in tandem together, and they are useless if they are broken apart into those two individual units, right? With certain examples more than others, I think people might be used to thinking of them as units. You never hear of pants. once in a while. Mm-hmm. I think I've heard of a-scissors, not frequently, but I've My heard a-scissors. My mom a says a-scissor. A-scissor? Yeah. Oh. Rather than a pair of scissors, necessarily? Um, I'm sure
0: she says both, but she definitely doesn't say a-scissors. She says mm-hmm. a-scissor.
3: Maybe it's the ones that we can hold in a hand that make Hmm. more sense as a singular object. But one example that seems to fall into this category but has a slightly different path is forceps, which look like they should fall in the same category as scissors and pliers. They're this tool that has two parts that are used to clamp like pliers. But forceps, when it was borrowed from Latin, had the S. So we interpreted that as a plural. And so... If you look in the Unabridged Dictionary, there are examples of plurals that are not just forceps. It says forceps also forcepses or
2: forcepies. 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 Golly. I'm
1: going to find an occasion to use forceps in the plural just so I can say
2: But That means it's analyzed like triceps and biceps. We think of them as plural, but they're actually singular. Not in English, Right. right from the Latin. There's something else about these words, which is when you made a verb out of these words, they actually follow a singular, a non-existent singular. So to scissor, to tweeze, to shear. We love our regular verbs in English, that's for sure. And these have sort of been normalized sort of retrospectively as regular verbs.
0: What do you do with pliers? To plier? To ply?
2: To ply, I guess. I might have (laughs) heard ply, but rarely. Yeah, (laughs) I guess it doesn't have a verb that's associated with it so clearly as these. (music) These.
0: Thank you to all who have written to us. If you have a question or comment, email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt, artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by John Vosey and Adam Maid. For Neil Servan, Ammon Shea, and Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media.